This is the Lead Speakers Podcast with Scott Lloyd. In this podcast, you'll hear engaging conversations with everyday leaders, discovering their motivations, desires, and passions. Hear practical applications and advice for becoming the leader you've always wanted to be. Welcome to Lead Speakers. Hello, friends and family, and welcome to Lead Speakers. So glad you could join us for the podcast today. And today, we're going to move away from our usual fare of speaking specifically about leadership, although what we have to talk about uh, does involve leadership. But we're going to explore um, white supremacy in this country. And I think it's uh, very apropos, uh, considering the murder of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia and the subsequent arrest uh, that has been made. And we're going to revisit a conversation that I had with my friend, Ali Henney, who is a leading voice when it comes uh, to issues of inequality and racism in our country. And I think the conversation that we have uh, for you today about white fragility will be very helpful and very instructive in these divisive times. Ali's content is a great resource for anyone that is wanting to learn about white privilege, white supremacy, white fragility, ongoing issues in this nation, systemic issues that need to be dismantled and addressed. And if you want to check out Allie's content, probably the best place to start is with her podcast, Combing the Roots with Allie Henney. Anywhere you find podcasts, you can access that program. It is a great, great resource for those that are ready to change, that are willing to engage, and are uh, ready to listen and to learn about the inequalities and injustices that continue in our nation. Also this week, I'm going to be releasing a podcast uh, with my friend Corey Leak, uh, also a a great voice on these issues. So I think, um, obviously, uh, this murder of uh, Ahmaud Arbery, guilty of nothing except jogging while black um, brings these issues to the forefront, uh, at least for white America, and they're always at the forefront uh, for our friends of color. But uh, as white Americans, we need to gather our people, as they say, and uh, we need to challenge ourselves. And so I'm going to uh, revisit this conversation that I had with Ali Henney about white privilege and I invite all of you to listen and learn. So, Allie, welcome. All right, yeah, I'm here. I'm, well, I'm good to go. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the idea of white privilege because many people push back against uh, this term, uh, white privilege, because the argument goes something like this uh, from people of uh, uh, white uh, heritage and color. Uh, they might say something like, uh, well, I've worked for everything that I have. I haven't received any special treatment. I'm poor. I'm not privileged. In fact, uh, someone, as I was promoting this today, someone shared a comment, you know, there's no such thing as white privilege, they said. There's only rich privilege. And we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. But I think that all of us can agree that, that we do have blind spots. Obviously, there are things that I'm not aware of. Um, Allie, there are things that you aren't aware of. And that's why we have friends and family Um, to kind of bounce things off of from time to time and say, you know what, Um, I might be blind in this area. Um, Just like when I'm driving an automobile, if if I check out all my mirrors 
it doesn't mean that I'm not going to back into that pole because we all have those blind spots. So it is possible whether or not, you know, we embrace the term white privilege, and I think we should, and we'll talk more about that. Um, it is possible that we have blind spots about um, ourselves. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, those blind spots that we need to be made aware of. And so, Ali, I, I want to bring you into the conversation today and, and open up our conversation um, by asking you a question. What are some of your personal experiences um, with coming up against white privilege? And how have you learned to navigate that? Because you, you face an added concern in your life as, as being a, a woman, a woman of color and not just a person of color, um, living in a culture that, um, that favors a normative white experience. And again, if you're just checking in, we're talking about white privilege and remember that white privilege isn't, um, isn't the fact that you were poor, right? Everybody has experienced poverty. Many people have in this country. Um, it's not, it doesn't mean that you haven't worked for what you have, but it simply means that as a white person, you have the ability to walk away and not deal with issues that people of color have to deal with on a daily basis. So how have you, Ali, um, experienced this in your life? So before I answer that question, sure. I thought you did such a good job of, of breaking down, um, of talking about white awake and sort of breaking down um, some of what, what white privilege is. I want to even go a little bit step, a step further and talk about privilege in general. And I think that perhaps by illustrating privilege in general, then whenever I start to talk about white privilege, um, people may be able to better understand. So this is a definition that I got. It's this is a definition of white privilege, and I'm going to take it down um, to privilege here in a second. But I actually got this um, from my friends at Be the Bridge to Racial Unity. Um, there's That's a page on Facebook that you can like, and there's also a group that has about 25,000 people in it, I think, um, that, that are connected to that group. And so they have a curriculum called Whiteness 101. Um, they actually have a curriculum for bridge building, and that's a whole different topic. But they have this thing called Whiteness 101 where they deal with white supremacy, white fragility white identity and white privilege is also another another thing that they deal with on this and so this is how more or less they define um, white privilege in whiteness 101 as we move through life this means that parts of our identity give us an advantage where other parts of our identity leave us at a disadvantage Social psychologist and theologian Christina Cleveland describes privilege and oppression as ways that society either accommodates us or alienates us. Privilege is about the way that we are advantaged by each category of our identity compared to others in that same category. So the idea of privilege or oppression is that if you're privileged, it's the way that society accommodates you. And if you're oppressed, it's the way that society alienates you. So um, as a black woman, as a, I guess, I, let me break my identity down further. I am a black cisgendered, meaning that the gender identity that I was assigned whenever I was born is the gender identity that I identify with um, now. Um, I'm heterosexual um, woman, that Christian, able-bodied woman that 
even though like I, I'm, I'm black and so I am uh, disadvantaged or oppressed in my identity as a black woman or disadvantaged or oppressed in my identity as a um, as a woman, there are, I do have, I do benefit from privilege. So um, for instance, like able-bodied privilege, um, sure. I, I am able to walk, I'm able to move. So I don't have to worry about um, having access to a building. Um, I have a, a, a precious friend um, at, at a church that I, that I attended several years ago where our church had two entrances to, we, we worked, we worked in an office together and our church had two entrances. And so I could use both of those entrances um, because what, one had stairs and the other had stairs and an elevator. And so I could use that entrance. I, I could use whatever entrance I wanted to use because I could use the stairs and the entrance with the, with the stairs was actually um, way closer to where you would, where we would end up parking in the parking lot. But my dear friend, um, she had to use the side with the elevator. And so what that meant sometimes was that sometimes that door wasn't unlocked. And so there were times whenever she would have to get, she'd have to get me, she'd have to get somebody to even come and unlock the door for her so she could go in and she could use the elevator because she wasn't, because she, she used a walker and so she wasn't able to walk um, and, and be able to go up the stairs. And so there, um, so in that, I had able, able-bodied privilege where my friend um, who, who used the walker to get around, she did not have the privilege of being able to get in and out of places the way that, that I did. Um, I have Christian privilege. I mean, in a, in a nation where um, Christianity is the dominant religion, and, and I, granted, I've, al- I've almost always worked in ministry spaces, so I guess I shouldn't use myself as an example in that case, but my husband, um, all of his religious holidays he gets off for those things. Um, it, all of us who are who are Christian, we don't have to worry about get being off of work for Christmas or being off of work for for Easter. For the most part, I mean, you know, there's some jobs that you work that people work, but they do end up working Christmas or Easter. But it's the normative thing um, that that's that's what's normative. People understand your holidays. People more or less understand your religious rituals, and it's not seen as bad. So, like, whenever as a as a Christian young woman. Um, growing up in my faith, there was a, there was a couple of times in school where there were some things that I just didn't feel like I should participate in, um, in band or in choir. There's some music that there were some places that we performed, um, or some music that we did that I wasn't comfortable doing. So I was able to go to, to my band director. I was able to go to my choir teacher and say, you know what, I don't really feel comfortable performing at this venue. So, and then, I mean, it, there's a couple of times that, yeah, it did ruffle feathers, but there was nobody that was there saying, oh, she's like, like she's trying to do this and that and trying to implement. It was just like, okay, that's, that's her faith. It was whatever. Um, I benefit from um, privilege, from, from class privilege a little bit. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm comfortably middle class. I've grown up um, middle, middle class for, for the most part. Um, and I won't uncover all of my, my family stuff because I don't want to embarrass anybody from my family, but I've actually been kind of on yeah. both sides sure. of the, of the, of the poverty or middle-class thing. I had just because of my, of my culture growing up in an extended family, like I was raised by my mom. I say I was raised by my mom, but, but being raised by my mom, I was also raised by my grandma and my aunts and uncles and cousins, and everybody else. And so I intersected with our, with our different class levels in, in my family. So I, I, I see where how, Having, being privileged in in being middle class, and then even now as an as an adult, being fairly comfortably middle class, um, I've benefited. 
from that. So privilege is we, we all more or less have it in some way. I guess the other thing, you know, being, being heterosexual, people don't look at me weird for being heterosexual, but, but then where it comes into race and now where I bring race into it is that um, in being in an interracial couple, um, even though I am in a heterosexual relationship. And so I have privilege on that end. Um, there are, there have been times where I've been um, afraid to express like affection for, for my husband in public because of where, because of where we were at and just not sure how people would respond or sure. would be places and people would kind of be staring at us or whatever. And it would just, it would just get weird. I, I mentioned in the last broadcast, we would, we would go to restaurants and say that we were on the same ticket and be brought the ticket separately um, where we would be out with other couples, like on a double date or with, with other couples and everybody else's ticket came together but ours came but ours came separately um, so there's some different so so there's some you know different intersections and stuff there so I want want to establish that that privilege is how we are advantaged or disadvantaged by society so as a so whenever we talk about white privilege in in specifically like in the in the racial sense where you're talking about racial privilege white privilege it's saying that society advantages white people to a certain to an extent based on their race. So the way yes, so, and, and, so, and just let me just let me interject here that as as white people, we're not going to immediately notice that. Mm -hmm. Because if, if you grow up in a system that favors you and you never know differently, you, you're not going to see it. You're not going to be aware that the system um, and that the culture is giving you advantages. And in fact when someone confronts you on that, you're going to be like, no, I haven't had any advantages. I've had to work for everything that I have. Well, you don't notice the advantage because you are a white person in a white culture. And that's what we mean by white privilege. And the idea of whenever you talk about privilege, and, and I wish I could remember the term that somebody else has proposed for this, but I'm drawing a blank right now. But the I, but inherent in the pushback of well, I've worked for everything that I that I have, and so I'm not privileged. There is a thing in in, in white culture, and I'll go ahead and say it's American society, but I think it's it's specifically white culture, but American society in general, that there is everybody wants to be rich, but then we're also skeptical of rich people, and then we. Um, also, being poor, people look at being at being poor, being downtrodden as wrong, and and so by saying that, so in saying that, well, I've had to work for everything that I've had, it is it's like you're saying that some, that somehow. Um, lost my train of thought trying to think of how, of how to craft this this statement so in saying that like I've worked for everything that I have is that it's, it's assuming that privilege is just about money it's yes. assuming that privilege is just about work and so it's assuming that people who don't have as much as you are somehow less worthy of you and so if we're saying if somebody's saying that you have that you have privilege then you're it, it's like you're saying to them that somehow um you they think that they're better than somebody else but they've actually because we have the skepticism in our in our nation in our in our culture of people who are rich just sort of having everything handed to them on a silver platter and so people sort of push back against that because that's the idea of privilege but privilege has 
very little to do um, with socioeconomic status. Because like I, like I said, um, you know, I, I've grown up middle class, right? I, I am middle class and I still, I don't, I don't, I have privilege um, because of being middle class, but I'm, I'm disadvantaged in society in, in many other ways and being, and I, yeah, I've been, dis, I've been disadvantaged in society in many other ways. So, so there is an intersection though with, with class and race. And so that's, but that's a whole other conversation about the intersection with class and race. And so to then answer the initial question of how have I bumped up against white privilege, um, in my life, I, I mean, I would say like it's it's hard to think of just one actual thing where it's like, okay, this is this is a this is a good, excellent example. Well, um, I can, so yeah, I say so me... I'll say it in just like a general sense that like yeah. there's um, in, in a general thing, it's like um, being white white privilege. The way that I see it is is always being believed like people people believe you people believe you to name to name your experiences people sure. um people there, there's an expectation like people people will listen to you um and i get to kind of see this a little bit in being married to a white man i've been in situations um in the church incidentally i've been in situations where i'm I'm the leader. I'm the person with the position, the person with the title, the person who's supposed to be doing things and the, the person who's supposed to be, the, be leading. And I will ask, we'll make a request, we'll whatever. And I, I had one, one incident is, wasn't just one incident, but, but there was one person that anytime I would ask them to do something, cause I was, I was kind of a, 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 in a second in command position and I would ask this person to do something. And invariably, he would sort of be like, "Well, you know, I've I've got to check with the with the person with the one person in the organization who was above me. Well, you know, I've got to, I've got to check with him and make sure that that's okay." Now, my husband, who really had no title, who really didn't have any position in the organization, asked this person the same thing, and they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, sure, I can do it." And so I learned that, like, if I wanted this person, this particular person, to do something, to send my husband to ask them to do it because then they would do it if I went and asked that if I if I did the ask then there was always sort of skepticism and like I've got to check I don't know about that I don't think I, I like I don't think that that's the right thing to do but if my husband but, but my husband was always listened to always always believe but you, you had something that you wanted to say I would have yeah I, yeah down and, and those that. are those are those are great examples um and, and by the way those of you that are just now tuning in we're having a discussion about uh, white privilege today uh, with Ali Henney. I'm Scott Lloyd. Uh, feel free to comment below, ask questions, share this with friends. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Every day, um, not every day, thankfully, but um, every time, unfortunately, when I have been pulled over by law enforcement, there has never been an instance in my life as a white person. I always get nervous, you know, just like, why was I pulled over? I always get my driver's license ready, but there has never been an instance in my life as a white person that I have feared that that encounter would end in my death. That is white privilege. I think the, the, the fact that many um, African-American males uh, cannot share in that same um, uh, feeling uh, you know, and it's just a sad fact. Now, people will say, well, you know, if they, they don't break the law, then they have nothing to worry about. But, but we have seen instances where that is simply not the case. So the fact that, that I can be um, 
pulled over by law enforcement and not saying that I don't deserve it or people that, that, that are in law enforcement aren't doing their job, that we do have to have that, obviously. But when we're talking, talking about this in the context of white privilege, as a white male, I have never felt like I should be fearful for my life in this exchange. Um, however, I've talked to many uh, people of color who do not share that feeling. And I think that is a very uh, real and very powerful uh, example of white privilege that I live with and enjoy in my life that people of color, unfortunately, do not. But, you know, it doesn't even have like, like that's a big, heavy thing. Mm -hmm. But but white privilege doesn't even have to manifest in those big, heavy, kind of controversial things. White privilege can also manifest in just everyday stuff. So, for instance, if I'm actually there's I, actually I don't go to the mall uh, very often for this reason. I don't go to, go to the mall very often um, in my town for this reason is because whenever I would go to the mall, I would get followed in stores. So yeah, like in Old Navy of all places, like every, like yeah. $5, like, 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 why are you following me? Um, but I would, but like, you know, I go to Old Navy and people would follow me. I went, remember one time I was like in a Christian bookstore and was like the only person there. And, and the person's like watching me and like kind of following me around the store. And I'm just like, okay, like, I'm, I'm not going to steal anything. I'm just looking for a Bible. Cool. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> So just like something like that, like um, white privilege is whenever you travel, not having to worry about where you go. And, and the, the re reputation to that sometimes is, well, but I have to watch out for the bad neighborhood. OK, but in the bad neighborhood, everybody in the quote unquote bad neighborhoods, which incidentally also happen to be the neighborhoods that, that have black people in them. And those are bad neighborhoods. But that's a whole other different conversation. But I like. Um, so, for instance, like I'm from the Kansas City area and everybody always talks about like Prospect and, and Troost and, and the Paseo and how bad um, those streets are in, in Kansas City. And it's like and people are like, oh, but, you know, the, and those happen to be very heavily black populated areas. And, you know, so people are like, oh, yeah, like I know people who've been mugged there. I knew somebody who had, who had um, gotten held up at a gas station and stuff there. And so, like, that's that's horrible that that happens. But um, that but like whenever I travel. I'm not just looking over my shoulder in the bad places. I'm also very aware of my surrounding in the good places. Because in the bad places, like they're they're not discriminating. <laughs> it's not they're not they're not discriminating. If somebody's if somebody's gonna kill somebody, if somebody's gonna mug somebody, if somebody's gonna steal somebody's car, they're not really looking at you if you're black, white, whatever. Um, you know, I know I know black people who my my, my stepdad um, worked at a store and got and got held up and got like hit in the head. Um, and I think it was by somebody incidentally who ended up working at that at that store. Um, but but it was in the bad part of town. So that doesn't so that doesn't make a difference. But um, white privilege is that whenever you stop somewhere on a on a trip with your family, and you don't have to think other than avoiding the bad neighborhood, which is places that that most of us would avoid. Just you know, you're, you're in everywhereville um usa you're not thinking about is this place safe for me is this is right. this place safe for my family um where i've traveled cross country like 
countless times. My sister lives in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. My family lives in Missouri. So I've gone, I've driven back and forth countless hours um, for countless thousands of, of miles. And whenever I stop to get gas, whenever I stop to have to, to go to the bathroom or stop to eat or whatever, I'm very aware of where I'm stopping. And actually, in fact, I mean, there's in the state of Missouri, there's places, there, there are entire towns where I'm not going to stop like ever, <laughs> like where I'm making sure that, uh, that like, okay, I got enough gas to get through here. Or even like, you know what, I'm not going to travel through this area because I'm going to try my best to not have to travel through this area, or at least to not have to stop in this area because I, because I know things are bad. So that's, right. so, so white privilege is, is not, so just, you know, everyday, yeah. everyday things, you know, like you can have, you can get makeup at the store, you can get pantyhose in your color or whatever, that type of thing. Those are, those are kind of everyday manifestations. Yes, we see, we, and again, this goes back to our last conversation, the fact that we see um, in our culture, we see a normative advantage that is given to white people, whether it's um, the, the makeup that they need, the accessories that they need, and then even going into a store and, and becoming a person of suspect. I, some, I saw someone, uh, a question pop up, um, and, and you can address this if you'd like, um, why the, the question was, why do you assume that if you're being followed in a store, it's because of your race? And of course, my, my quick response to that is because white people aren't being watched with the same uh, suspect eye that that people of color are being watched and followed. And I've been in the store with friends before. And um yeah, I remember like I, yeah. I had a friend that we go to JC Penny, <laughs> that we go to JC Penny and stuff a lot, and it would be it's just or you know being places with my husband that just miraculous like I, like people would be looking at me or kind of you know hey do you need help hey do you need help and then as soon as the white friend appeared all of a sudden I wasn't being asked if I needed help every five minutes. Yeah, and um, see, this is another example <laughs> of what we talked about last time, um, whereas a person of color. Um, when you describe your experience, you can't own that experience, but an excuse has to be made or reason yes. has to be given as to why you experienced this. If, yes, if somebody that was white said, hey, I was being followed, nobody would say, well, you know, mm -hmm. are you sure that happened? Um, you know, maybe there's a plausible explanation. But the assumption is, is that because you are a person of color, that there has to be an explanation that you're, you're imagining all of this, this racism. Well, yeah. So if I, if I had just come on here and said, well, you know, like I've had men follow me and stare at me and kind of leer at me in the store, kind of weird. I would, people would believe that because we, to a point, believe women, we believe women to a point when they say that somebody is creeping on them in, in, a, in a weird way. We believe that experience, but we don't, we don't readily believe and we, and we want to excuse and want to have to try to try to find answers and explanations to why, um, why it could be something other than race. And a lot of that comes down to um, racial discomfort is that it is uncomfortable for, for, I think that it's very uncomfortable for white people to hear that, white people can be racist to hear because there's it's yeah. so it, it, I don't know how to how to craft this statement but but white culture is so um unique it's, it's it's very it's very different in that it's very paradoxical in that white people don't really feel like that they have a culture 
until like somebody else pipes up and says, Hey, I have a culture. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, Oh, but then, well then, well, yeah, I, I do too. Or, or usually it's, Oh, well, you know, everybody does that. Um, it's, it's very paradoxical in that white people see themselves individually. And, and this is like, this is, science studies this isn't alley talking this is this is you can go and open up books and read about white culture and 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 read about these things and white people tend to view themselves individualistically yet whenever you say like white people and you make that generalization everybody takes it personally so it's like so but but and that's paradoxical because black people are what black uh, culture african-american culture we're what's called a collective culture and so we're we're a collectivist culture so we we view ourselves as a group we view ourselves as a whole yet if you say black people blah 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 i can be like oh yeah that's me or i can be like that ain't me. I don't do that. And is and so it's, it's just paradoxical how like black people that we we think of ourselves as a whole and think of ourselves as a collective, but we can very easily like individualize within that and say, yeah, we're not monolithic. We don't all do that. But if, but with white people, if you generalize like that, white people are very just very rugged individual. Like that's 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 the culture is that you're, you're you don't see yourself in the same way culturally um, that that I do. But then if you say if you make a generalization like that, it's like oh no like that's like like not all white people it's not it's not me so I, i've always i don't even know how to how to how to correct right. that or how to think of that that's just an, that's more of an observation i don't really know know what to do or where to go with that but that's just more of an observation and and, and that that comment remind like made me think of that observation that i've had because i think that it, that um that 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 the, that the comment and i'm not you know ragging on you thank you for, for your honesty, that's this is what we, this is what we want is to ask these questions, and so I certainly don't want to want to put down your question. Um, who who asked? Um, I don't I don't want to put that down at all. But I'm just but I'm saying that it's very it's very interesting where the pushback um, comes from because it's almost like you know me saying that that you know, yeah white white people followed me around in the store. White people have done this. It's almost like. But but that but there has to be a seeking of a of another explanation. But we don't do that like with 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 creepy men. We don't we don't say like somebody's like oh yeah there's a creepy man in the Walmart parking lot staring at me. We don't say we don't ask the the woman to say oh but was was are you sure he just wasn't looking past you? Are you sure he wasn't looking at something else? Are you sure that your that your fly was unzipped? Like right, yeah. like we, like but like that would be out of place. We would totally be like oh my goodness, this creepy dude was leering at you in the, in the Walmart parking lot. Oh my gosh, creeper. Like we, yeah. like we would, we would do that. But, but whenever it comes, but for whatever reason, reason, there's something with racism that, that it touches in, in particularly in, in white identity, because we don't black culture, people, cultures of color don't do this as much. It does happen, but we don't do this as much where we interrogate the experience and have to try to break it down. And, and usually when, and whenever we do interrogate the experience, usually we're doing it to ourselves and think, thinking, oh my gosh, is, is this, there has to be like 50 other reasons. Um, but we don't usually do it to each other. And if we do do it to each other, it's more like, I'm just trying to make you feel better. <laughs> yeah. Because that, and because I, that's the best stuff, stuff that you just Yeah. And need. I think this, this entire portion, you know, is, is a manifestation that that you know white privilege does exist in our culture because um you know we we were we were simply having this conversation and and again we appreciate all the questions keep those questions coming comments feel free to share um but but it is a dynamic and and that's what we're attempting to do with this conversation is is to cultivate conversations so that you can have these kinds of conversations uh with those that are around you i want to move on Go ahead. Can I say one more thing? Sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. The other thing that I want to say is that um, 
for white people, you don't often have to think of something happening because you're white. Mm -hmm. um, I have often had to ask questions about, okay, did this happen? Did this just happen? Or did this happen because I'm black? Yeah. And so that's, so that's also, that's privilege, but let's, let's move on. No, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, again, it goes back to the definition of the ability to walk away as, as a white person, I can move in and out of these conversations. I can think about it and then not think about it and go back to the normalcy of my life. But as a person of color in the United States of America, these are issues that are, that you have to deal with uh, constantly. Um, let's, let's talk about some strategies that you would recommend to help those that struggle with recognizing their white privilege to become more aware of it. And, and, and this idea of walking away from the difficult and challenging racial concerns. So if, if to your, to your white friends and family, how do you help them negotiate uh, these conversations? Um, first of all, I recommend, I, I've mentioned it already, but join Be the Bridge to Racial Unity. Um, there are a lot of really honest conversations that happen there. I think that it's, that, that the, I guess that I say all of that under the umbrella of you have to educate yourself. You have to, like, like conversations like this are great. Um, people sharing with people um, of color is great. Like kind of having these exchanges like this or even with people that you know, those things are great. But there's a point where it, at least like the common thread that I've heard from friends who have become more racially conscious, the thing, one of the things that has helped them is by one, hearing other people's stories, but also by educating themselves and reading and reading books like Wide Awake or there's another one called Waking Up White. It's so weird. Like I it actually, yeah. I, I have one of the books and I'm borrowing the other one of the books from from a friend it's so weird that they're both like talking and, and, and white people like you know, always talk about like you know they, they, they woke up like they just realized it's, yeah. it's, it's so funny that this that this is called like it's like almost like a white awakening or something that's that's happening but I think that educating yourself about racism and even educating yourself about the systemic nature of racism because um, I think a lot of times we focus on the individual side of racism and we and the interpersonal side of racism which is sometimes harder to see because you you are dealing in things that are sort of abstract like and so there always is this question of but well how do you know that this was happening because you were black and maybe in in different instances it wasn't because i was black but it's sort of like i don't know what else it could have been i'm not you know i, I don't have I'm not carrying a big old purse i'm not doing anything suspicious and i'm being followed and so it's one of those things where it's like you have to you have to once you get to a point where you're where you're learning and you're educating yourself to be able to recognize things and you hear the experiences of people because whenever people keep having the same experiences like I, I'm part of communities of people that I have not known and we have come together and shared the same verbatim experiences and like to the point where you're able to finish the person's story for them because they start telling the story and then you're like oh and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened it's either black people are experiencing some sort of collective hysteria and yeah. we just are, don't know what's going on we're just like making stuff up and we have like and we just like are, are, are making this whole thing up or there's or there's actually a problem I lean more toward there being a, an actual problem than it's just a bunch of hysterical black people walking around like, oh, we're just, oh, because nobody wants, I, I've said this you know, a million times, nobody wants to experience racism. Like, I don't want, like, it's, and then to say something about it publicly and then to have to 
go back, especially if you're, if you're talking to, to people, if you're in mixed company, and you're talking to people of the majority culture, to then have to explain that experience, like nobody, like, like nobody really wants to do that. And um, if people, I mean, maybe there's some weird weirdos out there who want to, but nobody really wants to do that because it's, it's dehumanization. And so it's like, you're dehumanizing yourself by telling this story again, by saying somebody was treating me like I'm not human. So you really don't want to have to do that. So if we're sitting here unpacking this and saying this is happening, there's a, probably a pretty good chance that it is because right. yeah, there's people that there's, yeah, there's people that make up stuff because there's people that make up stuff of everything. But just because somebody like makes some, one person makes something up doesn't mean that everything else that's happened isn't, isn't true. And, and with any other um, subject, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't have to excuse it. We wouldn't have to justify it. We wouldn't have to work through it. But, but for whatever reason, when it comes to this uh, white normative culture, and I think that is symptomatic of the fact that it exists. Yes, it's it, race, it, race and race. Those are the, those are the only two yeah. things that get interrogated at this level is race and rape. You mentioned um, the idea of systemic um, racism, and you know that that is a hard um, pill for many people to swallow. Because, as as we talked about in our last conversation, uh, many people you know will relent and say, "Hey, we've we've moved on, we've made progress. That was the past. This is now. Look at how much better people of color have it." Um, those are a lot of the phrases that you hear bandied about. Um, but when we talk about this idea that racism has become uh, institutionalized in our country now, can you give me some examples of that and, and, and kind of explain to folks what we mean when we're talking about systemic racism? So systemic racism, to say very briefly what it is, is it's basically whenever, or another word for it would be institutionalized racism, mm -hmm. um, would be racism that takes place, that takes the shape, and takes its shape in the institutions of society. So things like schools, things like law enforcement, prisons, the, the environment, different things like that, um, that there are, that, that there are systems that oppress uh, people of color um, through the through the, those systems, like there's like there's systems that oppress people by virtue of how they are structured. Um, so uh, so an example of that would be something like the school to prison pipeline. Um, I actually just I, I talked to a pastor um, recently in Richmond, Virginia, who was um, his church was part of an initiative to push out basically a prison that was being built that was going to be built in their neighborhood and the way that they were predicting how this neighborhood was going to be built or how this prison was going to be built was by looking at the number of black boys that they had in like the third or fourth grade and so they decided that this this company that was that these people who were going to build the prison they decided that they wanted to build the prison in this neighborhood because there was a high concentration of um, third to fourth grade black boys. And so um, this church, the incident with other churches, they, they were able to, to push this idea out of their neighborhood. But it's but um, in talking about the school to prison pipeline, it's little boys, especially little black boys, especially little girls to it, little black girls to an extent. There's there's are, there are predictors that if a kid gets 
kicked out of preschool. I'm not even really sure how you get kicked out of preschool, but it happens to black kids all the time. If you get suspended or expelled from preschool or kindergarten or whatever, there are different predictors as to whether or not you're going to end up in prison. And so, um, those and, and there's there's a little bit more nuance to that right um it, it's a little it's not as simplistic as that and i will say that it in, in it not being as simplistic as that it probably doesn't the reasons probably aren't what you think they are it has very little to do with home life it has very little to do with upbringing and it has a lot to do with how um black boys especially but black bodies are um are incriminated in the system um i have not watched i'm sorry somebody but my schoolmates just popped up here i yeah. have not watched 13 i was i was um, going I've to not, mention that i was going to mention yeah, the documentary, documentary 13 yeah on netflix Every, is a great resource and the new jim crow also is a book i own both the new jim crow and i have access to 13 and I have not been able to bring my, there, there's some reasons that I just have not been able to bring myself to watch it yet. Um, because there's, there's some things that, that hit a little too close to home, um, in both of those, in both of those things. So I just haven't been able, yeah. been able to bring myself so, to engage with it yet. So I'll mention, uh, about 13th, uh, specifically since I have watched it and it was very instrumental, um, in, um, opening my eyes to this idea of systemic racism. Um, what that documentary does, it, it traces, uh, throughout uh, past administrations, I think going all the way back to the Nixon, perhaps the, the Johnson White House, about how the idea of law and order, something that obviously all of us would embrace. No one wants to live in a society without law and order, but how that phrase has been subtly turned into uh, an idea that results in the mass incarceration of black males in this country and how every administration uh, has supported that. And now we live in a nation where our, our, we, we can't build enough prisons. We can't uh, you know, build them enough to keep up with capacity. And of course, you know, the simplistic pushback that you hear so often, well, you know, people just should not uh, break the law. But if you look at the statistics and you see that black males in particular uh, for uh, crimes that their white male counterparts would receive parole for, and those black males are being incarcerated, we have an issue uh, in this country. We have, we have an issue that we need to deal with and we need to address. And um, that kind of leads me to, to my next question that I had prepared. And when we start talking about this idea of white privilege, it can make a lot of white folks uh, very uncomfortable and leads to this idea of white fragility. And I want to talk about that a bit because white fragility is how, you know, when we get into these conversations, uh, white people, we tend to become very defensive. Uh, we tend to become very uncomfortable um, and we push back and we push back hard, um, you know, with ideas of like, well, now, you know, because we're doing all of this, we've got, we, somehow we've landed at uh, reverse racism is a term that you hear thrown around a lot. And I think that's a result of white fragility. So talk a little bit about that, if you will, Alan. Yeah, so white fragility. Um, this term, I believe, was coined by a woman, white woman named um, Robin DeAngelo. She actually has a book that is, 
I don't think it's out yet because I pre-ordered it from Amazon and I don't think I have it yet. But then I've also been getting a lot of books lately, so who knows? <laughs> but I think it comes out the 26th. Um, she's been, but she's been working on this this idea of white fragility for years. And if you Google Robin, then it's D D I Angelo. Um, there's a ton of there. She's written journal articles about it. There's a ton of stuff about it. But anyway, she defines white fragility as the result uh, it is the result of white racial socialization a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable triggering a range of, of defensive moves these moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger fear guilt and behaviors such as argumentation silence and leaving the stress-inducing situation these behaviors in turn function to reinstate white racial comfort and the status quo. Yeah. Um, so, so to break that down is that basically white fragility happens because of how white people have been socialized to talk about race. And it says what white, I mean, I guess that there is, there is socialization. Whatever you're not, I was going to say, well, there's not really socialization because y'all don't talk about it, but even not talking about it is, is socialization. Yeah. Um, just white people are socialized um, not to have racial conversations. It's socialized as it's not polite. It's not polite to notice somebody's color. It's not polite to do all these things. And so there's a, there's a, even guilt about it. And so because there is um, a lack of social, of, of social Socialization, a lack of racial socialization, then because um, of white privilege and mm -hmm. wanting to and, and, and the feeling and white privilege and white supremacy and the feeling of for white people, there, there's I think that there's often a feeling of coming into every situation and and being fully equipped to, to handle every virtually every situation. Um, and so whenever there is something that you're not able to like be on top of um there can be it can be uncomfortable and that's and i say that that's not just a white person i mean anybody feels uncomfortable in this in, in situations where you're like man i don't know what's going on right. but in a racial situation in 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 racial situations where you're coming to a conversation that you have no idea as a white person that you may have no idea how to have and so then in not having any idea of how to have that conversation and you but you know that it's a charged topic and you know that it's something that is is controversial and there's fear of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or there's even guilt for things that have happened in the past or there is shame for what's happened in the past or there is anger because of whatever so there's all these different things that sort of stew and so then whenever something happens the minimal amount of, of racial stress it just and, you, yeah. and, and white folks blow up, they get angry, they, they feel fearful, they feel guilty, they, they argue, they don't want to talk, they, you know, I, I, the thing that, that I, I've called as the white dude flounce is like, sometimes like white, you see it like on Facebook, was like, oh, well, I can't say anything because I'm a white man. And so it's like, it's not like, I, I guess my voice isn't wanted. And it's like, and yeah. it's like that's how I imagine, I'm sorry, about like, but trying to mock, but it's, but it's, <laughs> but it's funny because it's like, it was like, oh, I guess I can't talk about this. And I'm like, like you, you have the agency to type on your phone or computer or whatever. It's not that you can't. It's just that like what you're bringing to the conversation is the same. Like you, you think that you're bringing something new and unique or whatever to the conversation. And oftentimes you're not. Oftentimes you're like, you're saying this, like I can tell you what you're going to say. And so yeah. like, like you don't know how to have this conversation. So listen to 
to the people who are, are telling you, like, this is what this feels like, or this is what's happening, or even white people who know a little bit more, like, like listen to them, um, rather than rather than flipping out. But anyway, yeah, I think I, I think it's a manifestation of, of we talked about in the beginning of white supremacy. And, and that is really a term that makes people uncomfortable. Because, again, when we think of white supremacy, too often, especially in white culture, we think about the Ku Klux Klan or other white nationalist groups. But white supremacy is basically the idea that when white culture comes into contact with other cultures, white culture usually prevails. And so when we are put into a situation where we are having a conversation with a person of color and we are confronted with their reality, we become defensive, we want to make excuses, um, and then we see or hear things that the other person isn't saying. For example, uh, a month or so ago, I, I made a post about, uh, you know, slavery in this country was defended because uh, it had to do with sustaining an economic way of life uh, in uh, America. And, and people saw that and immediately, you know, they started talking about, um, oh, you're, you're saying that, that white men and white people are the subject of all evil everywhere around the world. And I didn't say that. They were jumping to those conclusions. They were hearing things and they were seeing things. They were imagining things that I had not even said. And, and, and here's, here's what I think would be very helpful. And this, this goes for everyone. The old axiom, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And listening goes a long way. Not listening to anticipate what you're going to say in response to the argument but listening to understand what the other person is saying. And, and we have this little game. I, I happen to coach collegiate debate. And so I, I tell my students that one of the best benefits of debate, if you do it right, is that you should not, you should learn that you are not allowed to disagree with someone or to, um, or to push back on their perspective until you can articulate that perspective to their satisfaction. And so when they say something, you repeat it back to them. And when they nod their head and say, yes, that is absolutely what I'm saying, then you are qualified to disagree, but then and only then. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think that there's even with the with the white fragility and white um, privileged component, I think that there that there is. It's funny that you mentioned debate because I think that there is a, a component of where people enter into these conversations as if they're a debate, yeah. and they enter into these conversations as if my reality and my experience are up for dispute. And but and once again, race and rape; those are the only two things that we that we do that with. And I think that it's so important that if and that that if you disagree or if you're not sure, is to is to listen. And that's something that once again, I guess I, I man, I need I need Baby Bridge to pay me because I've been bigging them up all day today. Um, but that is something that in the Be the Bridge to Racial Unity group that they really emphasize is listening. And actually, if you join that group, they require white people to do well. Not white people. I was going to say white people. That's inaccurate. They require everyone to do um, a 
three month listening period, but it's but it is um, especially enforced for white people, and they probably would not like me saying that. But but often because I mean it's, it's 20, 25,000 member group, you can't like, sure. say. Yeah. But but because the people who's cutting up usually are white people that come in in fragility. Like I mean that I'm sorry if that offends somebody, but that's just what that's usually what happens. Is yeah, it's reality. Cuts up, and then somebody comes in and cuts up, and then the, and then the, the moderators, the admins, go and look and be like. Oh, you just you joined this group like a week ago. You, yeah. Like, be quiet. <laughs> and so, the, and they have um, some learning modules and stuff for you to go through. But the, but the whole idea of be the bridge to racial unity is listening, because um, this is something. And I've I've done a lot of white generalizing, like saying you know white white white. And I know that that makes white people uncomfortable. I know that white people hate to do that. Um, I've not found an, a more effective way to say to 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 say it other than to say it in generalizations. Um, so that's something that, that I probably will, will will say what I want to say and then or yeah. will address and then say what I want to say is that 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 that's part of white fragility. That's part of what we're talking about. Whenever I'm saying like um, is be the bridge is be the bridge a Facebook group? Yes, be the bridge to racial unity. That's a fa- that's a Facebook group, and you can and you can join that after this broadcast. Yeah, um, and, if, and if people are upset about uh, you know. They, they feel like you're generalizing. I, I think watching this should be example enough that obviously we're not talking about all uh, white people. Yeah, because it's it's hard to, because it, it's just, it's funny. It's like, well, I say it's funny. There's so much that I could, that I could say about this. Um, I think that in race conversations, um, a little bit of my psychology background coming in, but white people haven't reached um Piaget's level of what he called like uh, his stages of development. What the last stage of development, I believe, is formal operations, and that's where you're able to think about things um, abstractly. I believe it's been a while since I've been in psychology classes. I have a degree in it, but I'm sorry, I forget stuff. It's been ten years. I believe that the, that the degree before the the uh, stage before that is concrete operations, and that's like where you have everything very very firm or whatever. So white people haven't really reached the formal operations, be able to abstract and stuff about race. So they hear white people and they think me me it's me. She's talking about me. She's implicating me, and so there's this defensive to say, no, not all white people, because it's not me, because I don't have to be, because because you're saying you're saying that I'm racist. So there's this whole thing, and so I know that 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 me saying that, and I probably should have said this up front, but I know that me saying white people, white people, white people is probably very um, uncomfortable for a lot of people. I'm not trying to generalize in order to stigmatize. I am generalizing because if I said, if I said well, every white person except and listed all these different parameters, we would never be able to have the conversation. Right. Like it, because, I would, because I would be sitting here trying to be ex- extremely precise in my language so as not to offend people. So I am sacrificing precision of language. And, and this is, we have the saying that if it don't apply, move on by. So if yeah. you're not that white person that I'm talking about, then you're not. And so you don't have to, and so you don't have to be upset about it. But, but first, don't, that, don't, don't assume though that you aren't that white person. Do a little self-reflection, uh, self-examination and, and work through that. Uh, Allie, we've got about five minutes left. Um, so what have you noticed about the church, how they're dealing with it? Whenever we say the church, um, I'm going to go ahead and define that to the white church and say mm-hmm. they're not really. Yeah. Um, in the black church, it's been a a core kind of tenet in the in the black church. Um, but even like in the black church, James Cone, who passed away recently, even said that um, the black church has even gotten away a little bit from from talking from from it, it's been focused on being victorious, which is which is important and which is and which is great. But even has lost a little bit of its of its steam on that. But um, I think that. 
the church is not adequately addressing that. And whenever I say the church, that doesn't mean that individual churches aren't, but those individual churches, whenever you really get down to it, are few and far between. So I would say that that in general, the church, and I'll even narrow that down a little bit more and say like the evangelical church and leave that like even racially ambiguous because we could argue about if, if evangelical, if that's just white people or if it's white people and black people. But um, in the circles and stuff, in the, in the branch of Christianity that I think that we both sort of have intersections in and then out from that, I would say that, that we're not really dealing with the issue or if we think that we are, we're not dealing with it in a way that's that's adequate that is actually that that where we're actually dealing with the problem right not because just the, making people feel comfortable yeah not because, just saying, okay because, racism is bad everybody feel comfortable yeah because a lot of times the answer um has been we need a more diverse group or we have diversity um that is uh on 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 the stage uh we have diversity um in our leadership group um, and so that has been the answer um, recently uh, for a lot of white uh, churches to say, hey, look, we are addressing this, but that's a good step. But that doesn't address the systemic issues that are still at work. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't address and bring it back to the topic of this. Um, I think that it's it's very rare if it even happens that churches are addressing these issues of white privilege and I know that I know that it's hard I mean I've, I've been in ministry for a long time I know it's hard to address issues like white supremacy or white privilege um, or white fragility and not even necessarily putting it on using white 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 to say it but dealing with some of these some of these things giving people the tools to be able to, to talk about and, and deal with these things I don't I don't think because I, I think that and there's a lot of reasons for that and we'll get into it on the, on the next broadcast but yeah. i think that there's, there's a lot of reasons for that but I, but I think that yeah there's there's been um a there's an idea of what that means and i think that the idea of what it means and, and in different circles it means different things um but i but i even have i have a lot of questions about that and it's something that i've that i've been working through um for the last several years having ministered in contexts that were um multiracial but um, for the most part, there's there one that I was, that was one place that, that, I, that I've been where, where I, it wasn't as multiracial, um, but where I've been in a context where it's been multiracial, multiracial, but still predominantly white. And um, some places have been even like predominantly like white cultured and mm -hmm. stuff. And so um, the ideas for how to address and kind of whatever have been, um, it just hasn't been. I think that, that there's some ways that we can that we can that we could grow that we can all kind of grow together in grace. Absolutely, and get better with that. Uh, thank you so much, Ali, for agreeing to do this. Uh, I really appreciate your insight and your thoughts on on this topic and uh, your courage as well, um, because not everybody is willing to talk about these things with the openness and the honesty um, that uh, you have exhibited. So so thank you, sincerely. Thank you very very much. Thank you so much, Allie, for that important and uh, informative information. So very helpful, especially at this time. And we started talking about the church there at the end, so I want to encourage all of you to look for uh, the next episode of Lead Speakers that will drop later on this week with my friend uh, Corey Leak. Uh, you can check out his podcast, uh, Existential with Corey Leak, anywhere you find podcasts. We have a great conversation about how 
these issues especially apply in the church. Check out Allie Henney, Combing the Roots with Allie Henney. Anything that she does is awesome. You need to follow Allie Henney and stay tuned for my conversation with Corey Leak. Uh, it'll drop later on uh, this week. Until next time, friends and family. This has been the Lead Speakers Podcast with Scott Lloyd. For more information, check out scottlloyd.com and share this content with a leader in your life today. Lead Speakers. Lead. Speak. Persuade.